You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. Open your Bibles to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Last Sunday, uh, we were in verses 1 through 14 as we started John 5, and we saw a tidal wave of mercy at the Pool of Bethesda as Jesus healed a man who had been lame for 38 years. And we also began to see that there's this growing opposition or confrontation between the Jewish religious leaders and Jesus as we learned that he had not only healed this man, but he healed the man. He chose to heal this man on a day that was known as Uh, the Sabbath. And so it was causing this uproar among the Jewish leaders. And so today we will continue on with that. That last week ties into this week uh, to a degree. And so we'll be in verses 15 through 47, 15 through 47. If you can do math, you know that that's a big passage. That's a big passage that we're doing. Uh, We're not going to read it all at once. We're sometimes we do this where every once in a while we'll read it at the, the whole passage at the beginning of the sermon and then unpack it as we go. Today, because it's such a big passage, we're going to take it bit by bit as we go through it. So we'll read a bit, unpack it, read a bit, and unpack it. Um, All right. Before we do that, let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, we come as needy people. Lord, both preacher and congregation. In need of your spirit to take your word that you have spoken and given to us and had Preserve for us in our Bibles, Lord, and apply that word to our hearts and minds. Would you do that? And do it in such a way that you would get the most glory. Lord, help us to be able to concentrate. We know there are booms and bangs happening around us in this room. But Lord, we pray that your glory would have the greatest place upon our attention this morning. May that be so. Be exalted. May our hearts be full as we see you more clearly, Lord. And may you, may your people be glad in you. In Jesus' name we pray, as church says, amen. Amen. Growing, <clears throat> growing up in Texas, you hear of people who live outside of Texas. In fact, I married someone who was outside of Texas. And you hear the stereotypes that they have of Texans. And my wife maybe even had some of these stereotypes, I think. Uh, A few of those. Everyone wears cowboy hats and rides horses to school, right? Tumbleweeds are always blowing across the road and prairie dogs are everywhere. Some of us, I, I met some people from San Antonio who I took them to West Texas at one point and they had never seen a prairie dog. And so when they started seeing these things popping out of the ground, they said, what is that? Looks like a little squirrel. Um, so but that, that's the stereotype. There's, there's prairie dogs everywhere, riding horses. Everyone's riding horses. Well, I grew up in West Texas. I grew up in Midland, which is out far West Texas. And I realized that not all of the stereotypes people have of Texas or of Texans are actually wrong. They're not wrong. I've seen people riding their horse down busy city streets. I, in fact, growing up, had two friends who on regular occasions rode their horse to my house so we could play. These were elementary times, and they're just showing up with their horse, and we play for a few hours. 
random dust storms would just blow in and regularly interrupt outside fun. Dodging tumbleweeds, even the sum, the size of like the, your car, or half the size of your car, dodging them as you drove were regular occurrences. We would pick up horned toads, toads that have horns, and play with them. That is so West Texan. And even back to the prairie dog thing, they are everywhere. We would try to catch prairie dogs because our thinking was, if you had a real dog, that was, that was nice. But if you could have a prairie dog, that was a whole nother level of cool. That was cool. On top of all that, we had a, a sheriff that is what you would imagine a West Texas sheriff is supposed to be. Our, our sheriff was a Marine that served in Vietnam and then took over as the sheriff in 1985 and served for 35 years. So ever since I could remember, he was our sheriff. He was a big man. He was, he was well over six feet tall and was known for his iconic look. He, he always had a, a white dress shirt, a flag patterned tie, a Texas star, a cowboy hat and some boots on. It's a sight that you wouldn't forget, right? Just a big man, cowboy sheriff. You would see him on TV. I'd see him on TV as a little kid, warning bad guys to stop the crime or else he would come looking for you. I came across some articles written about him after he died, and this is what was said about him. He was quite a guy and never seemed to stop working. He lived by the idea to treat everybody fairly and believe in God He never met a stranger. He was just a tall man with a huge heart for his community and an even bigger heart for hurting children. He wore his badge as a humble servant. He was larger than life. In my young 20s, I'll never forget the day when I actually finally met the sheriff of our county and I saw him in person for the first time. He he was a man that commanded authority. He was a man that commanded authority. He had this booming voice and a big body. He was bigger than anything I'd ever even thought as a kid growing up. I I met him as a young 20-year-old. I thought, he's huge. This man is huge. I I shake his hand, and and it, it was as if my hand was just engulfed by his hand. He spoke so kindly to me, yet I felt so small and incredibly humbled to meet this man of great authority. And I thought, I remember the night meeting him. My my brother-in-law was a police officer, so I got to meet him one night. And I remember just thinking, who in their right mind would ever cross this guy? Who would ever commit a crime after seeing him? You'd be out of your mind to do such a thing. Who would dishonor or reject his authority by breaking the law and get on his bad side? Yet we know people do, right? This man of great stature and great authority that commands authority, yet people see that and still reject that authority. On one side, he's celebrated and beloved, and on the other side, hated and rejected. In a far greater way than a small town West Texas sheriff, we see in this passage that Jesus is the one with ultimate authority. Though humble and kind, he is glorious and great. And the grandeur of his authority is is above all 
and engulfs all creation. He, he is the most impressive one in all the universe. And this passage will display this and will call us to respond rightly to him. And it will remind us, this passage will remind us just how foolish it is to respond wrongly to him. On one side, we will see he is celebrated and to be beloved. And on the other side, he's foolishly hated and rejected. And that's the big idea of what we'll see today. Jesus is God the Son and has supreme authority over all things. And so then we are called to respond to him rightly. And the question this passage bears to us is how will we, how will you respond to Jesus? How will you respond to him? This passage will encourage us towards a right response. And then it will confront the wrong response. It will encourage us towards a right response and confront a wrong response. First, we see in verses 15 through 18, the rejection of Jesus' authority. The rejection of Jesus' authority. Follow along with me as I read. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So if you remember from last week, after the the man was Uh, lame for 38 years who was by the pool of Bethesda Jesus healed him and then Jesus encounters him and tells him to stand up and walk take up his mat and walk he begins walking the Jews begin to interrogate him the Jewish leaders do and this man doesn't know who healed him but yet he meets Jesus back in the temple it says Jesus found him is looking for him finds him in the temple and so now he knows just who healed him and so he returns and at the beginning of this verse verse 15 He returns to the Jewish leaders and he answers their question that they had asked earlier. Who told you to pick up your bed and walk? And now knowing just who it was who healed him and told him to pick up his bed and walk, he tells them it was Jesus. And it seems now as if they turn their interrogation from the man to an interrogation of Jesus. In a sense, they are investigating Jesus as if they have gone into an informal court session. Court is in trial and Jesus is the defendant and his identity and authority is being questioned. But it's not only being questioned. The Jewish leaders are ready to pronounce judgment upon Jesus. They're already ready and their judgment already is death. Chapter five, we have almost 20 more chapters to go and already they're pronouncing judgment on him. First, they're persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus could have healed this man on any day of the week, but he chose sovereignly, providentially, purposefully to do it on the Sabbath. Jesus intends to enter into this confrontation in this very moment. 
The Sabbath was a day, if you remember, we talked a bit about this last week. The Sabbath was a day to rest from the normal work of the world, the normal labor of the world to gather in fellowship with God's people and to worship God. And the fact that Jesus is doing these good works, that's the these things. That's why it's so interesting in the scripture that he was doing these things. You mean healing a man? Miracles? Incredibly good things? He was doing these good things, these works on the Sabbath. And by telling the lame man to now pick up his bed and walk, the Jewish leaders considered it to be the breaking of their 39th rule against forbidden work on the Sabbath day. These rules still exist. You can look it up. The, I, the Mishnah Shabbat 7.2, I think is what I just looked. You can find it. You can read Point th- rule number 39, you cannot, it prohibits you from carrying one thing from one domain to the next, to another domain. And so as a result of this man-made rule, they see this man who was lame for 38 years now carrying his mat on the Sabbath. And instead of worshiping with glad hearts, they are angry. Doesn't it seem so foolish? The scripture often shows us that. Look how foolish these wrong responses are. Look how blind that actually is. They're angry. Just just who does just this Jesus think he is? And what kind of authority does he think he has that would enable him to do such a thing on the Sabbath? And second, they're interrogating Jesus. And as they interrogate Jesus, his response to them makes them even more angry angry. The word that's used for Jesus answered them. He answered them is typically a word that's found in the context of trial. When it's, when it's time for the defense against the charges that have been brought. So Jesus, Jesus isn't merely answering their questions in a casual, just gentle way. He is now giving a formal defense and presenting evidence We've all seen court shows. I enjoy some of those shows. There you go. That's a little nugget for you. I enjoy some of those types of shows. I enjoy the, the finding, the research, and all that kind of stuff. And you always see the lawyer stands up there, and they're commanding the room. They're presenting their evidence against the charges brought. And so there's purpose. There's a charge there. That's what's happening. That's what's happening. He's proving, in order to prove his case against those who are ready to judge him, and they're already judging him deserving of death, and he's actually going to present evidence now to prove that he's deserving of their worship. That's what he's deserving of. So his answer is, his answer to them is, just as my father is working, I am working. The Jewish leaders understood what Jesus was saying. In their society, sons did what the father did. Faithful sons gave themselves to doing the same work as their father. And the Jews understood that the only father who was at work on the Sabbath was God the Father. Because though he rested from his work on creation of creation on the seventh day as an example to us, they understood that it doesn't mean that God the Father ceased to be active in working to uphold the universe he created. And so they gave room for that, essentially. There's no work, but okay, we'll give room because someone has to uphold the universe. 
So we'll say God is doing that. He can work on the Sabbath and do that type of work. God, God is not the clockmaker that created and, and leaves the creation to exist on its own. God is and must actively be upholding the universe to sustain it in every second of every day or else it would cease to exist. And they get that. And Jesus' defense for why he is allowed to do what he did on the Sabbath is because he is being the faithful son that does what his father does. Work to uphold the universe on the Sabbath. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And in saying this, he's identifying himself as God the Son, one with God the Father, sharing in the identity and authority of God himself. And the Jewish leaders know exactly what he's saying, and their response is not amazement or worship, as if, oh, now we know why he does miracles. That's not their response. Their response is, Kill him. Kill him. The God of the universe is here, mercifully healing people for 38 years have been lame, and they say, kill him. What foolishness, right? What blindness. One of the arguments people make of Scripture and the identity of Jesus is that in, he never made himself out to be God incarnate. It's one of the arguments that are, that are made that later on, his followers just begin to claim that of him, to sort of give him an upper hand that, that they can accept. He was maybe an incredible teacher. He may be at most, he was a prophet who spoke on behalf of God. But being God, that was just something his followers came up with. That's not who this man is, but that's not accurate, is it? These verses, this passage is clearly identifying Jesus as one with God the Father and so then sharing in the authority of God. Clear in these verses. That reason, this fighting against this authority of Jesus, Jesus' claim to be one with God the Father, that is the very reason why the Jewish leaders wanted to kill Jesus and ended up hanging him on the cross because of his claim to be God and one with God the Father. And so we have people nowadays who say, oh, he never, he never claimed to be God. Yes, yes, he did, actually. The reason why we do that, though, the reason why we want to say those types of things is because Jesus claimed to have ultimate authority over our lives to tell us how to live and to be the one who gets to make the rules is what some men and women hate most about Jesus. They don't hate his good works. They don't hate that he said some confrontational things every once in a while and that he did good stuff. They hate that he claims to have ultimate authority over them. Because if he is who he says he is, then they must bow down to him as Lord of the universe and Lord of their lives. The Pharisees hate it. People today hate it. Don't you dare tell me Jesus is God and that he is the authority of my life. But our response to Jesus doesn't change the truth of who Jesus is, right? 
It's because we live in a world where we think it's my truth. Jesus is not that. Just because I believe that, I don't get to decide what truth is. We don't get to decide. Jesus is putting himself in a place where he gets to decide. He's the truth decider. That's, what, that's what's confronting the Jewish leaders there. And it confronts us today. He gets to decide. He gets to choose. He's the one who has ultimate authority. And so Jesus doesn't back down. And, and in this interrogation of his identity and the rejection of his authority, he continues his defense in verses 19 through 30. And we see the declaration of Jesus' authority. The declaration of Jesus' authority. Jesus, he's just going to make it plain and clear. Follow along with me. 19 through 30. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, verse 24, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own, my own will, but the will of him who sent me. These verses are some of the most profound and exalted theological declarations of Jesus' identity and authority in the whole Bible. When I told Rob at our elder lunch and meeting this week, I said, We're gonna do, I'm going to do all the verses, brother. He looked at me like I was crazy. He said, he said, you know, we could take a year on just this chapter alone. I said, I know, brother. We're going to do it. <laughs> We're going to go at it for one week. We can't take a year. These verses, verses 19 through 30, are revealing of Jesus' identity and are a declaration of his supreme authority. Three times Jesus uses this truly, truly statement. I'm sure you've heard that as you've read your Bible. And it's this way of saying what I am saying to you before the court. Listen. To what I say, what I am saying to you, whoever is hearing me, whether those standing before Jesus then or those hearing today, whoever hears this, this is absolute truth. 
That's what Jesus is saying. When he says truly, truly, it is this declaration. Listen, because this is absolute truth and you have no room to deny it. You must accept it. Truly, truly. And he begins. Jesus begins this long declaration in verses 19 and 20. Picture it in your mind. I'm a, such a, a visualized thing. At the very beginning, you have verses 19 through 20. And then at the end, you have verse 30. And it makes these bookends in between there. So it's, it's kind of coupling these verses. And, and what's being communicated in both the beginning and end is that he is God the Son and is in perfect relationship with God the Father. And their relationship is one that is of a loving unity, a shared authority, and humble submission. A loving unity, a shared authority, and humble submission between the Father and the Son. That, that though in essence the Father and the Son are one, yet they are uniquely different persons, fulfilling their unique Roles to accomplish the work of God. And so Jesus identifies himself as the Son who is sent by the Father and is in perfect, beautiful, humble submission to the Father. There is nothing that Jesus is doing on his own. He is not some renegade or maverick. Everything that he is doing is in perfect harmony with the heart and will of God. The Father. And the Father loves him as his son, and there is nothing that comes between them. And so the Father withholds nothing from the Son and reveals to him his will and desire. Here's why that's important. Well, number of reasons. Here's one small reason. Some view the Bible as a tale of two gods. There was the father in the Old Testament who was angry and merciless and the son in the New Testament who pleads our case and is kind and merciful. But here we see that they share the same heart. The same God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament and the son was with the father in the Old Testament accomplishing his plans and purposes. And that same God has stepped into the New Testament the very same one. And it says, as we see Jesus, he is expressing the very will and heart of the father. And so if we see, if we want to see the father's true character, we look upon Jesus. You want to know the father, you look at Jesus. And so to believe otherwise, that there's a tale of two gods of the Bible is a wrong view of God himself. we see Jesus and the character we see of Jesus as he fulfills the perfect will of the father and shares in the heart and love of the father, then we know the father by knowing Jesus. Verse 19, Jesus is the faithful son who sees everything the father shows him. And at the end, bookend, verse 30, Jesus is the faithful son who hears everything the father says and perfectly and obediently accomplishes the father's will. Jesus is presented as the faithful son. In Exodus, as God chose his people and was going to save them out, God calls his people collectively, he calls them his son. 
and he covenants with them and they go into the wilderness. And what do they do? Are they the faithful son? No, very quickly we learn just how unfaithful they are over and over again. They are the unfaithful son looking after sinful things, trying and making a way for their own righteousness, setting up idols for themselves. And here comes Jesus, the faithful son, who hears everything the father says and who who sees what the father shows him and does perfectly the will of the father. Built into this is an indictment for God's people who should have been the faithful son. Yet we're so unfaithful. And isn't it setting up for us what Jesus would accomplish on the cross? The faithful son steps in the place of the unfaithful sons and daughters. Already building the gospel. Echoes of the cross already already there. And so this faithful son accomplishing God's will, the Father's will, though there have already been great things the Father has willed and Jesus has accomplished. We've already seen them. Chapter 2, he turned water into wine and cared for people at this wedding. And at the end of chapter 2, numerous unnamed miracles during the Passover feast. Chapter 4, the healing of an official son who was sick and near death. And then the beginning of this chapter, chapter five, the healing of a man who had been lame and helpless and hopeless for 38 years. And now in verse 20, Jesus declares there are even greater things coming that he is going to accomplish by the will of the father and the father giving the son hit the supreme authority to accomplish these greater things. And that's what we begin to see in verses 21 through 29. So in between these bookends, this loving relationship, unity, harmony of the father and the son we see the greater things that Jesus is accomplishing, this authority that he's been given. So first, we see Jesus has the authority to give life in verses 21 through 29. Jesus has the authority to give life. Verse 21, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Verses 25 through 26, truly, truly, take it as fact. I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus has the keys to true, vibrant, eternal life held only in his hands. And nowhere else can people gain this true life, right? Nowhere else. The Father's will is that people must come to Jesus if they are going to gain true life explicitly declared in these verses is the sovereign saving grace of God explicitly Jesus the son gives life to whom he pleases once again I think it's just a moment for an evidence of grace and the sweet mercy 
of our Savior that we can celebrate, that if you have come to love Jesus, if you have faith in Jesus, it is because Jesus himself has looked mercifully upon you and given you life when you didn't deserve it or couldn't have obtained it in any other way for yourself. The one who gives life to whom he wills has looked upon you and chosen to give you life. Isn't that a gift? Think of all the silly, selfish, sinful, rebellious, authority, hating and rejecting things you have done. And yet he has given you life. What a gift. What a gift. Second, we see Jesus has the authority to execute judgment. So this is still under his declaration of authority. He has authority to execute judgment. Verse 22, for the father, these are profound. Listen to this. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. Jesus, you want to say it's the tale of two two gods? This merciless God in the Old Testament and this merciful, meek and mild Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus is the one doing dirty work. He's been charged to judge all creation. He is loving and kind, but serious. Dangerous. We've heard that right. Some would want to make him out to be just this meek and mild, gentle Jesus. And he is gentle. He is kind, very kind and merciful to those who love him. But he is serious. That's what we see in the Old Testament. A God who is kind and merciful and bearing with the sins of the people, long-suffering with them. But he's serious about sin. In fact, he hates sin. He's passionate against sin. Jesus is reflective of the same heart. Verse 27, and he, the father, has given him, the son, authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. That's a title. We'll return to that in just a second. Verse 28, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So there's the spiritual life that Jesus can give today. It says, follow me. And they follow him. And on one day that's coming, there will be a day when he says up and out of the tombs, everybody will come. A physical life to all people. Isn't that wild? All people will be raised to life by his voice. But some will be raised to eternal sweet life with him and others raised to life for a life of judgment and hell. But all will raise at his voice. Yes. You don't want to obey him now, but when you're dead in bones, you will rise up when he calls you. Right. There are some passages, folks. Oh, not just folks, my precious brothers and sisters. There are some passages in the scripture. You know, there's parenting help here and there's how do we forgive one another here and there's there's these things and then there are just some that says look at your god and respond you just take him in take him in for who he is and you respond to that 
Oh, that's these passages. These are profound statements. Verse 27 specifically, look. He says, he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. It's the title. It's a title. It identifies Jesus is the one who God's people had been waiting for. The, the one called the son of man from Daniel chapter 7. And once again, in the Old Testament, John is doing that over and over again. Who God would send as a savior, as a Messiah, and would be given all authority to rule and to reign over all things. Listen to this, Daniel 7. And behold... With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. This is what Jesus is referring to. And he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is explicitly saying, that is me, and I have arrived. He is this one. You know, we we grow up, we're not Jewish. And so we grow up not knowing this Old Testament, and we're not looking ahead to this Messiah, this one who will rule and reign over all things, who will be in the form of of a son of man. Them hearing these things? In the right mind, you would think they would say, oh, my goodness. Let us bow down and worship. But we see the blinded heart doesn't worship. No matter what type of evidence is presented, it's blind. It's blind. Jesus is the son of man of Daniel 7 that they were looking ahead to. And so then there will be a day when at the command of his voice, he will raise every single life and he will judge every single life. Everyone eventually will answer to Jesus. So today he is sustaining all creation with the father. And then on that day, he will judge all creation for the father and he will give life to those that are his and he will bring to account in judgment those who do evil. So those who today and throughout all of history who reject Jesus and his authority and argue against him, though he continues to enable them to breathe and have life today, he enables the breath in which they argue him. There will be a day when they will face the judgment of Jesus and he will then reject them. And that is terrifying. At least it should be. How we respond to Jesus today has eternal implications. There's no waiting. I've heard that. I've been around enough young people. I served in a school ministry for several years, overseeing pastorally and serving. And I've, I've seen enough of it. I've seen young people. I'll wait till I get older. I've heard how. How can you say that? And then I see young people die. There is no waiting, right? Today is the day. Hear his voice and respond to him. There is no waiting. C.S. Lewis wrote Mere Christianity. I know we have different views on him and stuff, but I think these are so helpful. 
Listen to how he says this. He, an author, he says it so poetically in ways that I say like a donkey. Listen to how he says this. When you argue against him, you are arguing against the very power that makes you able to argue at all. It is like cutting off the branch you are sitting on. Oh, like cutting off the branch you are sitting on. But in the grace and mercy of the Lord, built into these verses of Jesus' declaration of authority is a call for us in how to respond rightly today. How are we to respond to Jesus today? It was built in. I hope you saw it in these verses. Verse 20a, that we would love him as the Father loves him. If the Father loves him and sees him worthy of his love, then we should love him. So we're to love him. We're to treasure him and delight in him. The second half of verse 20, that we would marvel at him. Our hearts would be captured by him and stand in joy-filled awe of how marvelous he is. Verse 23, that we would honor him. That we would obey and exalt and worship him with our lives. In verse 24, that we would believe in him and have life. This is the call of Scripture and how we are to respond to Jesus. Love Him, marvel at Him, honor Him, and believe Him, and so have life. That is the response. But Jesus isn't done. He closes by calling witnesses to testify of who He is and what He declares Himself to be, or who He declares Himself to be in verses 31 through 47. We the witnesses of Jesus' authority. That's what we see. Verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. So Jesus realizes that in the Old Testament, a person's testimony required at least two or more witnesses. Jesus has given his testimony. That's what we just heard. And now he's going to call witnesses to uphold his claims about himself. Jesus first points to the witness of John the Baptist. Verse 32. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me, you hear the court language, you're hearing it there? He bears witness and that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John and he was, has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Pause. What kindness of the Lord that even he, as he stands before those who desire to kill him and hate him and are rejecting him at the core of his heart is fallen humanity's salvation. How amazing is that? I say these things so that you may be saved. And I think he's saying that not just for them there. This, these words echo into eternity for today. I say these things, Jesus' words, so that you may be saved. What kindness of the Savior for those who have rejected and refused him. Verse 35, he, so John the Baptist, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Remember, up to this point, people were more excited about John the Baptist than Jesus. People were flocking to John the Baptist. People were ready to accept John the Baptist when he first entered the scene. They believed him to be a prophet sent from God. And so there was rejoicing at least for a time until he was killed. Right? And Jesus is saying, 
you rejoiced in him coming. You rejoiced in him coming. And you know what? He rejoiced at me coming. So it should make sense if you're following the equation that if you rejoice in him coming and he rejoiced in me, you should rejoice in me. John, the Baptist in chapter 1, verse 34, said it himself. He says, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Jesus then points to the witness of his own miraculous works, which also, I think, reveals the witness of God the Father. Verse 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have not heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Jesus says, that his miraculous works that he's done up to this point are even an even greater testimony than John's testimony. They are revealing that God the Father truly has sent Jesus and Jesus truly is the Son of God and is in union with him accomplishing these miraculous works. The Father bore witness to the Son when he spoke at Jesus' baptism saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Nicodemus in chapter 3, verse 2 even said it. For no one could do the works you do, Jesus, unless God is with him. It's plain to see for us, but, but another indictment Jesus makes of the Jewish leaders is that they fail to see that this is a work of God the Father because they don't truly know the God they claim to know. So they don't even recognize him when he's at work standing in front of them. And that leads Jesus to call upon his fourth and final witness, the scriptures. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Right? Didn't Jesus address the man, the, the man who was lame? Didn't he address his hope? He was putting his hope for life and restoration in this pool. It's someone helping him there. He's addressing hope again. You put all your hope in Moses and in what Moses has said. For if you believed Moses, verse 46, you would believe me for he wrote of me. That's amazing. You open your Bibles to the first five books. Moses was writing about Jesus. Where? How? Amazing. Verse 47, but you, if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus 
was speaking to these Jewish leaders who studied their scriptures. They knew all of the Old Testament and could call to mind the writings of Moses, which were the first five books of the Bible. And he confronts them because they think that in their knowledge and study of the scripture, they have eternal life and how much they can quote and how much they know. I've met people like that. Quote a lot of Bible verses. A lot of them. Correct, correct you if you misquote one. But yet, no love for Jesus. I've met people like that. No love to honor Jesus. I know the Bible. I know what it says. But I'm not going to honor this Jesus. A family like that. Quote a Bible verse to you right now. The power of God in his life is non-existent in their lives. This is, this is scary that we could use even the Bible as an idol. That we could hide behind the Bible, know it, and not know God. Jesus confronts them in this. They miss that the scripture leads to eternal life, but it leads by way of pointing to Jesus. Oh, these Jewish leaders think they have life and they they know the writings of Moses, but little do they know the writings of Moses. When, When in Genesis 3, Moses wrote about the one who would crush the head of the serpent, it was pointing to Jesus. When he wrote about the ark and the flood in Genesis 6 through 9 and how salvation came through faith in God and finding refuge in the ark from the flood of God's wrath. It was God's provision to hide his people away from the flood of his wrath. And do you know who is the better ark? Do you know who he was writing about? Jesus. It's pointing to Jesus, the greater refuge in whom God has provided for us to hide away in. Because the flood of his wrath is coming. Jesus in Genesis 6 through 9. When he wrote about the sacrifice and the tabernacle in Exodus. It was pointing to Jesus. When in Deuteronomy Moses wrote that there would come another prophet like him. Who would speak as one who speaks face to face with God. It was Jesus. Pointing to the one. We could go through hundreds of them. Over and over and over and over again. I love it. That is called biblical theology, seeing God's thread of salvation through all the scripture, seeing Christ in all the Bible. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Jesus is saying all of that points to me, but you don't see it. All of this evidence, all of these witnesses, but you don't believe. And Jesus lets us know why they don't believe. It's not because they didn't have the right, know the right things. It's because their hearts were absent of the love of God. The same way the man we saw last week, the man lame for 38 years, needed heart restoration most of all. The same way these men who are learned and educated, they need the exact same heart restoration as that man lame for 38 years, lying by a stinky pool. They're in the same boat. Heart restoration, unable to believe unless the one who gives life chooses to pour out life upon them. Heart restoration. 
They see Jesus in all of his supreme authority, yet they don't love and marvel and honor and believe in Jesus and so have life. We're told in verses 31 through 47, they don't rejoice in Jesus. In fact, they refuse to come to Jesus, he says. You refuse to come to me. They don't receive Jesus. Instead, they reject him. They'd rather pursue glory of men or for themselves. They'd rather rejoice at John the Baptist's coming than give Jesus the glory he deserves. And it is so foolish. The Bible tells us there are only two ways to respond to Jesus and his claims of having supreme authority over all things. You either accept his claims of supreme authority and worship him, or you reject his claims and you refuse him. And we've heard the two routes they're destined for us. The receiving of this precious Jesus, the coming to him for life leads to life eternal. Rejecting him today will lead to him rejecting you eternally. The Bible gives no room and in between. You either love him and marvel and honor and believe in him or you reject him for who he says he is and you refuse to give him the glory he deserves. There is no middle ground. C.S. Lewis, once again, who says it so more poetically. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said that the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Church, how will we respond to Jesus? I praise God that I look upon you and I hear you as we sing these songs and I hear you marveling and loving him and longing for him and seeking to honor him in your life. And you believe. I see it in you. And that's all his grace at work in you. But there may be some even here among us. There may be some even may may hear this later on. Who said, I've seen this Jesus, but I have not bowed down. The word calls you, gives you an opportunity. The word says, come and worship him. Come and bow down and worship the God with supreme authority, Jesus. Precious saints, will you please stand? Let's stand. May we join in with the call of scripture to respond to Jesus rightly, to love him, marvel at him, honor him and believe in him and have life. If Jesus is who he says he is and we believe he is, then he is absolutely worthy of all of our love and worship, isn't he?
He is absolutely worthy. Let's pray.